Very good. We can go live. Excellent. And welcome everyone to Data on Kubernetes Community live stream number 150. Yes, that's a milestone. Excited about that. Um, very excited about our speaker that we're going to be having with us today, as well as a couple of announcements that we definitely want to let everybody know about. We've got a lot of things going on in the community, getting closer and closer to KubeCon. So you know that means we're very, very busy with lots of things happening. If you have not signed up for KubeCon, it's very easy to do so. Please, please, please check out the link that I've shared here in the chat. Um, so that way you can get all the info that you need about the schedule, who's gonna be speaking, the different things that are gonna be happening, all the information about registration, whether you're going to be joining us online or in person in Detroit. The event will be on October 24th. It will be live streamed through, uh, through a special link that you will get if you register on the CNCF website. If you're going to register in person, if you have any difficulties, any questions about that, as always, you can reach out to us on Slack. That being said, we've got a lot of things to talk about today. Our speaker today is no stranger to the data on Kubernetes community. He will also be speaking in DOK Day in Detroit. And I just found out we'll be there in person. Very excited as always. He is the CEO of Any9s. His name is Julian. Welcome to live stream number 150, Julian. Well, that's that's awesome. Uh, 150. That's a very great number. So thank you for having me. Yeah, it's it's important to have a special person for a special day. And you certainly are a special person riding your motorcycle from Saarland to Valencia, where we last saw each other in person in May. We were talking before we got started about Julian's motorcycle diaries, his motorcycle experiences. He has a very cool motorcycle. But apart from that, for people who don't know you, can you just give us a little bit of background, who you are, how you got into the Kubernetes ecosystem, data space, whatever you want to mention? Yeah, well, we actually are a company building application development platforms for a living. Um, so Kubernetes is uh, an obvious choice these days. We've been, um, you know, engaged in data service automation since since more than a decade. We we started with manual operations, transitioned to Chef and Puppet. We did a lot with OpenStack. Um, then we transitioned to um, the Cloud Foundry ecosystem. We're still doing a lot with it, um, especially with Bosch, uh, uh, declarative um, virtual machine automation. And for a few years now, we're investigating, um, you know, expanding our product range to uh, Kubernetes as well. So building operators and automating data services is, is basically uh, daily business for us. And I'm happy to share some of the learnings along the way. All right, good. That being said, you know, you've been around this sort of space for a while and and we we're going to you know maybe towards the end of the live stream look at some of the things about, you know, what's going to be coming next, what are the questions that still need to be answered, what things you expect to be to be to be happening in the coming months and years. But regarding this issue of, you know, running stateful workloads on Kubernetes, as someone who's directly interacting with customers, what are some of the doubts that they often have when it comes to this topic? And what kind of information might you share that we that would be useful for people to have when they're having those conversations? Well, when it comes to data, there are several strategies on how you can uh, deal with it. Um, you know, certain fraction of uh, customers, they go all in with their infrastructure providers. And often these providers, they also offer some kind of, of data service automation. Now, for those companies who do not want to tie into infrastructures directly, um, you know, the biggest thing you need to avoid is tying into proprietary technologies too much. 
And with proprietary, I don't mean, let's say, a manufacturer giving you a certain flavor of, uh, of Postgres, um, but I mean, um, you know, data services that are vendor specific that you won't get on other infrastructures at all. So when we're building application development platforms, managing the data layer of your applications is essential. Um, so if, if you want to keep um, your data layer uh, vendor neutral, or at least um, based on open standards, on open source standards, the question is what's the best way to, to automate and to run and operate uh, data services. And this is to some degree an unsolved uh, uh, problem. Uh, I particularly think that Bosch, for example, as the, this tool for declarative virtual machine management is a very underrated technology and has been for, for years. Now, Kubernetes addresses the, you know, this problem of declarative um, management of stateful um, applications in a similar way. So it's natural to adopt Kubernetes because it has so much um, you know, traction. Um, but when it comes to data service automation itself, there's this kind of converging between you know, the data service itself, which, be which become more cloud native over time and the automation tooling along the way. So customers are often, let's say a bit disoriented. They don't know what exactly to do, what strategy to pursue. They don't know where the pain points are. And they often try try out because they, they need to collect experiences and, and, and they are expensive experience they collect along the way without any help, um, I can say. Very, very good answer. With that in mind, today's topic about building a simple Postgres async streaming cluster, how did this topic come about? What led you to that? And with that being said, if you want to start with your presentation, we can get that moving. All right. I mean, uh, the background of this talk is basically a lecture about Kubernetes I'm giving at a local University of Applied Sciences and material we're also using to train up new engineers. Now, the idea of, of automating a Postgres is here not so much to build a production grade Postgres, but it's like um, a guide that shows somebody learning Kubernetes going through uh, setting up a Postgres stateful set and documenting uh, it uh, along the way, which is basically what I did in the Kubernetes tutorial, um, which we share at learn.kubernetes.anynines.com. A link will be in the slides later. And this is basically uh, a lightweight version of it because we usually take more than three hours to go through the material. Okay. Um, so... Yeah, I can I can basically start with the presentation. Yeah, go for it. Yep. That's already the material. Great. I'll I'll start sharing my entire screen because um, there do. will be some live demos demo parts as well. Very good. And for folks in the audience, as usual, if you have questions, please get them in the YouTube chat. If not, we can always take the conversation to Slack. All right. So you can see my screen now. Yes, perfectly. All right. So um, as I said, the primary goal of this talk is um, to providing a taste for developing an operator. Now, developing an operator is not something that you can just do in one day and you, know, you have to pick up Go, you have to learn about uh, Kubernetes, you have to learn about the data service. Uh, and a lot of people, they start playing around with, with all the tools, um, you know, choosing a certain data service and, and just 
you know, get their hands dirty and start. That's why there are a lot of operator implementations out there from which not, you know, every operator implementation will be maintained a lot and, and not every operator is well designed. So um, if this talk, the idea is to educate people, uh, at least from experience that, uh, that we've made, uh, and, and give a glance into operator development and a particular part of operator development because it's surely too much uh, for a one hour's uh, you know, talk. So the scope here will be from um, you know, having a container image for Postgres to uh, building a Kubernetes stateful set. Now that would be rather easy, but uh, we also want to give it a little more complexity by um, setting up an asynchronous uh, streaming replication uh, with Postgres. So um, the non-goal here is it's not going to be anything production grade. There are many problems we, we, we just left aside um, as a conscious decision. Um, so our minimum goal is to have that uh, replica set, uh, sorry, the stateful set with three replicas um, where there, there's Postgres, three Postgres nodes, uh, where there's a primary and you can write to the primary and changes will be replicated. Uh, to the secondaries. As one of the constraints, I propose to use the official Postgres container image because containerizing, you know, a, a data service from source code is, you know, worth its own talk. Um, and also, if if your data service, if you automate your data services, and there's already an official container image that's, um, you know, flexible enough for you, you can just tie into the, the release cycle uh, of that uh, image and maintain your own part on your end. So it's less code for you to maintain. All right, so scope is we are happy if there's a three replica Postgres stateful set with one static primary and two static secondaries performing asynchronous streaming replication, which means there's not going to be automatic failover. I will maybe say a few things about um, the next steps uh, during the talk if you want to develop that idea any further. So I'm a big fan of, of you know, having a structure or let's say a methodology when approaching things because, for example, we at any we operate not only one data service, but uh, nearly a dozen of them. So we need to have a structure so that um, you know, creating new products you know, incorporates the experience we've already collected along the way. Um, so my personal uh, understanding, if you want to develop um, an operator, there are at least those five stages. And this is not referring to the operator levels of the operator SDK. That's a, a, different, a different idea. Here, it's more about what you as an engineer have to go through if you start from scratch and you want to automate a new data service with Kubernetes. So obviously the first thing you have to do, which here is called phase one, would be to learn about the data service. In other words, what would a sysop or a DBA do, this uh, database administrator? Um, once you know that, we'll look at, for, for example, we'll look at Postgres, how to set up Postgres, um, how to give Postgres the password um, so that you have you know, super user to work with. Um, and also uh, understanding streaming replication in Postgres, um, asynchronous versus synchronous replication, and choosing the one upper, upper, you know, replication method that, that suits your particular requirements. So this is phase one. 
Um, the second phase would be, well, you have Postgres, you need to have a container image. Um, so you need to containerize it. Once you have a container image and you know what to achieve, you need to wrap it with Kubernetes resources, um, which is then input to building the actual operator. So you're taking the Kubernetes resources and let you know go code basically apply those resources against the Kubernetes cluster. And finally, once you have an operator, you still need to manage that operator's lifecycle as well. So if you have, for example, new, new um, Postgres versions, these Postgres versions, versions will also mean that there must be uh, adaptations in, um, in the operator itself. So just right before the talk, for example, I updated um, this tutorial from version uh, Postgres version 12.2 to 14.5. And I had to modify some of the Kubernetes resources to make that uh, happen because configuration file changed um, during the many versions of Postgres that happened in the meanwhile. And you have to reflect this along your code base. So these five phases will basically cover the most important aspects. In this talk, we are going to focus on, uh, you know, learning a bit about Postgres so that the rest of the talk makes sense and then wrapping Postgres into Kubernetes resources. Um, it's not about building the operator itself, um, but it's about knowing this is what you could do manually using kubectl to build a service instance. And the operator then basically takes that, let's call it a tutorial or script, and make it happen automatically uh, upon, upon the creation of a corresponding uh, custom resource. So what would the sysop and DBA uh, do? Um, well, if you start Postgres, um, you need to you know, give it a, a password for the Postgres user. That's something we will go come back to later. Um, but most, most of the, you know, most of starting uh, you know, Postgres is, is relatively straightforward. So um, one thing to talk about a bit um, more detailed is Postgres replication. Um, well, we in particular here choose asynchronous streaming replication. So let's dig into what this actually means. So first of all, asynchronous replication is the opposite of synchronous replication. Um, I'm, I'm not an, you know, I don't have a textbook definition for what it is, but I think you get close if you say, a synchronous replication means that every transaction you commit to uh, the database will uh, be applied to uh, at least a majority of cluster nodes of your clustered instance. And uh, only then the transaction will be committed. So basically the trans once the transaction is done, you can be sure that there's a, a majority of nodes in the cluster who have, um, which have, you know, accepted your changes you know, successfully. Now with asynchronous replication, there's a different approach. Uh, you basically commit your change to a primary server um, and you don't care on the transaction level about uh, replication. So a simple visual that of that would be you have an application developer, for example, or an application committing a transaction to the primary server. And then there's a second step happening independently, which would be to take that change 
and also apply it to a secondary server, which would be the replication. Because these two, um, you know, the, the transaction and the replication don't happen in, in an, in an um, atomic way. Uh, we call it uh, asynchronous. So replication is asynchronous to the transaction, to the actual change of the database state. Um, there's, by, de by definition, this means that you also have a, a different, um, you know, point in time when replication occurs to the transaction, and, um, and there must be a delay. And this delay of the secondary to the primary is called a replication lag. And um, we look into that a bit further because there are several ways you can organize um, asynchronous replication in, in, in Postgres. And the particular one we, we are interested in is called streaming replication. And streaming replication is um, setting itself apart from a file-based log shipping, which has been the default in Postgres for a while. Um, so if you think about file-based log shipping, um, we're talking about um, um, so-called write-ahead logs, um, basically files containing what changes to the database have been made. Um, so such a wall file uh, contains many wall entries and those entries represent the changes to the database. Um, in in file-based um, log shipping based replication, you'd basically take those wall files, transfer it to secondary and execute it there. So you'd basically batch processing uh, all the changes, which means that, um, you know, such a wall file contains a batch of changes, you transfer it to the secondary and replay them there. Obviously that makes the replication lag um, the size of the wall files. And only after such a file has been transferred, uh, the secondaries may catch up. So uh, opposed to this, there's the ability to stream wall entries rather than uh, transfer the entire files. So this would require a permanent TCPI connection from a secondary to the primary to read all the wall entries in, in a continuous manner. And this has the, um, the upside that you will be, you know, uh, catching up with the primary much faster as you'd uh, be receiving changes much quicker. So our conclusion here is let's go with asynchronous streaming replication. So if you if you want to set up streaming replication, um, what happens is that the secondary connects to the primary and it needs to authenticate itself. And then the primary sends the wall entries to the secondary. Of course, there can be multiple secondaries. In our case, we are heading um, we are aiming at a three replica sets, so we'll have two secondaries. But I mean, this concept applies to both secondaries then. So the secondaries must be authenticated uh, towards the primary. So a replication user is required. So basically you need to set up a database user uh, who is purposely purpose bound or at least you know meant to um, represent the secondaries accessing the primary. So there's the primary user, um, you need to create it. Well, uh, in phase two, um, we think about the container image, but there's already a Postgres container image, so let's try to use it. Um, Postgres um, container image is here found on Docker Hub, 
It gives you a lot of configuration abilities. Um, we only stick to the very basics. So for example, we need to set up a Postgres password as an environment variable. So we need to somehow store a password in a Kubernetes cluster and make this password show up under a particular password. Um, so with that basic information, we can also already start looking into how to build this whole thing, how to wrap it in Kubernetes resources, which would represent phase four. So um, that would be the big picture. We are going to you know, use a container image. It's the official container image from Postgres. So we got that covered. Uh, we are creating a stateful set with three replicas. Now, if you want to address nodes in a replica set, you also need to create a headless service. So that's if you're familiar with stateful sets in Kubernetes, um, you already know that this that these two usually go together. Um, the headless server sets it apart from its um, you know non-headless <laughs> counterpart. So usually, um, a service in Kubernetes. Um, if not stated otherwise, is basically acting as a reverse proxy. So it has its own IP address. It accepts incoming uh, traffic and, and does a round robin uh, to entry, uh, entry points or endpoints that are registered uh, using a match label. Um, you can do that with web applications, for example, that are stateless very easily. Now, in the case of databases, um, the headless service has a different behavior. The headless service does not come with its own IP address, but it um, basically resolves to DNS addresses of the actual pods. So whenever the pod changes, the DNS entries in the Kubernetes DNS will be updated and reflect upon those changes. Hence, um, a headless service does not have a, a, its own IP addresses, but it's basically implemented as uh, uh, you know, a dynamic DNS configuration that's kept up to date in the Kubernetes DNS. Um, we'll have a look, uh, look at what this actually means, what the implications are for stateful sets and why this really makes sense. All right, so headless service and stateful set goes to go together. The stateful set is, um, you know, the foundation and the primary aspect of the talk. It's basically, um, a resource meant to have a, a stateful applications. Um, it allows you to uh, you know, define uh, persistent volume claims, which will then create persistent volumes. This is where the data of the database will be stored. Now, in order to get this whole cloud, uh, this, this whole uh, Postgres thing uh, up and running, we'll also create two secrets. So the secrets in Kubernetes, as you may already know, are basically uh, similar to config maps, uh, key value pairs, um, but you can, for example, also uh, configure a Kubernetes cluster to encrypt those uh, secrets that they are more secure. Um, so we are creating a Postgres secret to store the Postgres password, and we are creating a separate Postgres secret to store the replication user. You could also have it, you know, have it in a single uh, secret, but I chose to keep them separate because they they serve different purposes and. Um, represent different sets of credentials. But as I said, it's a matter of taste. We're also going to have two config maps. The ones, uh, the Postgres config config map are, uh, will contain the actual configuration files you need to, you know, um, serve to the Postgres binary. 
um, and also another config map that will contain a small script. Um, finally, there will be uh, a Kubernetes job for, for creating uh, the replication user. It's not necessarily the case that this would be the ideal way how to solve creating the replication user. You could also use scripts um, within the stateful set, which may even be a better approach, but um, this also utilizes and shows how to utilize a, a Kubernetes job. And um, it's an, at least, you know, it's a feasible way of doing it. The replication user uh, job also refers to a, a very small, small script that needs to be executed that will then connect to the database and, and create the user. In this case, it's uh, created as a container image. And um, that gives us the opportunity to, to, to briefly discuss how do you bring a script, a small script to, to a binary. Are you creating a container image uh, or are you, for example, storing the script in a, in a config map instead? All right, so let's dig deeper. First of all, Postgres, uh, the Postgres configuration, um, what you have to um, uh, do is basically give, you know, a Postgres conf file where you can you know, adapt your particular configuration that you would like to pass to, to um, Postgres, as well as a pghba.conf, which uh, configures authentication details for your Postgres. Um, Postgres utilities is basically a small shell script that uh, distinguishes, uh, sets apart roles within um, the Kubernetes stateful set. Um, in particular, we need to distinguish uh, between the primary and the secondaries. So this script basically uh, retrieves information from the pod and derives the information, whether it's the primary or one of the secondaries. Um, this is necessary because um, the primary needs to invoke initDB, where, for example, the secondaries need to invoke uh, PG-based backup to catch up with the primary on startup. So um, to, in order to create a config map based on, um, on files, you can use that, you can you know, just execute that qcuttle command. Um, and there you go, we'll see and do that later in the talk. So uh, once you created that um, config map, basically there's um, a key, with the name of the file here, it is pg init dot uh, shell, and its value obviously is the script. So the uh, Postgres secrets, well, that's actually not true. Um, those are the files for the config map. Um, here is an example of the configuration file. Um, for example, you define the Postgres HBA file location. Um, you set the write ahead log level um, and some other tweaks necessary to set up replication. Um, and this is an example of a pghba.conf. This is not production grade. We, we are basically um, saying that all nodes from the same network, um, you know, may perform an authentication based on username password for the user replicator. Well, this doesn't you know, really make sense. It would be nicer to close 
you know, down the number of uh, of, of hosts are able to access um, um, the, the database because in many cases the the network will be cluster wide network. So I mentioned earlier the headless service, um, and this is basically a good example what it does. Um, it basically creates you with uh, those URIs, Postgres SQL minus SFS uh, zero dot PostgreSQL minus service. So um, the second part of the train rack would be the name of the service, and the first parts are DNS entries each one for each um, entry uh, endpoint registered with the headless service. So uh, with the headless service and a stateful set having several replicas, you can either address the entire stateful set with all its replicas receiving DNS resolution to all uh, its nodes, all its endpoints, or by having the names of the pods in front of the service name, you can address them individually. That's a very powerful thing that will be used quite often. So as I said, you need to create a, a replication user. So the primary needs to have a replication user so that the secondary users can log in to retrieve the wall entries. So we know that this uh, user must exist and it will be authenticated user using username and password. That's why we created a secret for that purpose. The, there are two headless services in our design. One is to access all cluster nodes, just as I said before, and the other is a pointer to primary. So just think about it for one second. I mean, our goal for today is set up a primary and having uh, two secondaries. So your application uh, will just, or will be able to just take the PostgreSQL minus SFS minus zero, for example, and we make that the static primary, that would be easy. However, with the idea of having another headless service where there's one pointer to the primary node, for example, by uh, annotating the, uh, the primary with a particular label or, um, or any other means to distinguish, you can dynamically set this service's name to point to the current um, primary. So this is what we want to do. We would like to say lay the foundation so that we can later also switch the primary pointing to one of the current secondaries. This would be necessary if you want to do automatic failover, something, which is something that's sadly out of the scope for today's talk. All right. Um, this is one of the examples on how to do that. Um, as you can see, this version of the service defines the selector for the particular pods uh, to be connected, you know, added as as entry as endpoints. And this one, um, it just takes the stateful set Kubernetes pod name, which will be the first one in the stateful set. And that's very good for bootstrapping um, the stateful set. You can also see that there's a comment which says role the primary. So by, by modifying the service and attaching this label to pods in the stateful set, you could later make this more dynamic and have this pointer change over time. 
Um, so that's something we can try out a bit later is um, the headless service basically has the effect that if you look up this domain, you will see um, you know, all the nodes in, uh, in the stateful set resolving with their particular uh, IP addresses. And you know, to the speed of the Kubernetes DNS being updated, and this, uh, you know, these DNS entries will be kept up to date. So the stateful set itself is uh, pretty straightforward. Um, in, in this case, we have the actual uh, Postgres container. Uh, we have a persistent volume claim mounting the data directory, which is basically the single most aspect of, of running uh, data services in a declarative manner is to distinguish the ephemeral uh, compute resource, which may be a container or maybe a virtual machine from the persistent data directory that really makes up the state of the database. So with that particular design pattern, which is you know used for, for more than a decade already in, in, in automation, you can update, for example, you know, the uh, the environment, including the operating system, and just remount the data directory so that the database server can continue to serve requests where it, it, it left off. It decouples the lifecycle of the ephemeral virtual machine or the ephemeral pod from the lifecycle of the data directory. So you can throw away the pod, you can throw away the stateful set, but the persistent volumes will remain. And when you recreate the stateful set, it will find through the persistent volume name names referred in the persistent volume claim, the persistent volumes that have been left behind. So what it means is that if you delete the stateful set, this will not delete its um, persistent volumes automatically, unless you, you know, specify it to do so, but they will be left over. This creates the risk of, uh, the risk of having orphaned um, persistent volumes so you need to take care of that, but it also gives you the opportunity to just, you know, fix a totally broken stateful set by creating it new, uh, newly from scratch and uh, still be able to access, you know, and reconnect this service instance to the already existing data represented in those persistent volumes. Last but not least, once we've started the replication, uh, the, um, the stateful set, three uh, pods will spin up but the secondaries want to connect to the primary. So we basically need to wait until the primary has started, and then we need to create the replication user. Now we do this with the Kubernetes job here. I think it's a better, it would be a better way to take a config map, for example, take this, the script as a shell script or as an SQL script, and then invoke it um, during the container startup from within the container. There are special directories that uh, Postgres, the Postgres container image will uh, go through and execute all scripts from that folder. So there will be an alternative uh, to do it. The container image also is pretty straightforward. Uh, in this case, it refers to that uh, small container image called um, A8S PG Utilities. Um, it contains a little Ruby script that's idempotent about creating replication users. But basically what it does is it checks if the user already exists and if so, it does nothing. If the user doesn't exist, remove it. And you can also turn it around for deleting it. 
And the idea is that if you need to run that script multiple times because you are in an unknown state and you would like to uh, you know, get into a, a known state regarding the existence of the replication user, you can just rerun the script uh, because it's idempotent. Well, and as you can also see that uh, you amount, we are mounting uh, uh, you know, the Postgres uh, secret to obtain the Postgres password, but also the Postgres replication secret to obtain the details of the replication user. At the very bottom, you can see we run uh, the Ruby interpreter as well as uh, execute the actual script. Now, um, you, know, you could have the discussion, well, this is only a script. The script has only, let's say, 100 lines of code. Does it really make sense to create an entire container image for it? And the answer is, well, maybe. Um, in my opinion, you know, it's valid to uh, have a container image because you know can you have this entire release management for container images, and it's a good way to ship code uh, as a best practice. During development, for example, this can be very, very frustrating if you have to, you know, run through, uh, you know, this whole cycle of creating and transferring container images. Uh, you know, this might be cost um, and time, of, you know, wasting time. So um, the the fun thing is, if you mount a config map as a file, and you update the config map, the file contents will change within the container during the container runtime. So this is, for example, different if you uh, map uh, config map values to uh, environment variables in a pod, they won't change until the pod is recreated. So destroy, terminated, and a new pod is created. So mounting config maps as, file, as files give you the opportunity to access you know, files dynamically. And if, for example, your process rereads those files repeatedly, you can use config maps in during development to iterate through changes of a script much faster than you'd be able to with the container image. Just as a side note, uh, once this, you know, the version has been released, you know, you can still create that container image. Uh, one thing, <clears throat> like this particular script that um, creates the um, or that bootstraps the um, the stateful set. It needs to distinguish, as I said, between executing in a DB, which has to happen on the primary, as well as um, executing uh, PG-based backup, which needs to happen on secondaries. So how would you do that? In this case, I decided to read that additional label information. Um, well, who's the primary? And you can do that using the downward API, which gives a pod the ability, for example, to read its own labels. And this is the script. So, um, uh, this is the, 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 the init script, which basically checks whether there's this uh, uh, particular label or whether the, yeah, in this case, it's the label being the first node in the stateful set, because we said it's for now, uh, a static primary assignment, um, and then invokes initdb accordingly. All right, um, demo time, um, which basically means I have prepared a Kubernetes cluster here. Minikube runs here on my, on my machine. 
So we are here in the PG namespace. Um, there are no resources found. There's also a visual, um, you can see there are no stateful sets. There are no persistent volume claims, no secrets, none that matter to us, uh, and no config maps, no jobs. All right. So the first step is we take a bit bigger. The first step is to create the config maps. Um, we are creating them from files, which basically means that within this directory, there there's a PostgreSQL conf file, um, as I sh as I've shown in the slides, and there's also a PG. HPA file, like so. So by creating that config map, there it is. This is what you get. So the name is the, the name of the file. And the value is the content of the text file. Um, I think you can do this up to a megabyte. So this is really only for you know small size information. It's not meant to be um, a data store. All right. So this config map exists. So we create one for the uh, for the init script. So the init script is the one that distinguishes the primary from the secondary and uh, is run within the container during the startup of the Postgres stateful set. Uh, and we'll either uh, execute initDB if we are on the primary, or it will execute PG-based backup if we are on secondary. So creating uh, uh, creating that Config map is also straightforward, also from file. Creating a secret. Here we are using a literal, which basically means we will provide username and password um, here at the command line. So in production systems, you probably you know choose a different a, a, a different way to do that. All right. Also the same for the replication user. Uh, it's just that this has a, you know a username and a password both being literals in the form of uh, uh, you know, key and value. There's one thing to be reminded though, uh, which, um, which is if you create a secret like this, um, all values are base uh, 64 encoded. So if you were to edit this config map, you know, Editing these values will either trigger an error message, or if if you are unlucky to you know uh, use and choose base sixty four compliant characters, um, you will set random values. Well, not random, but um, not the values you intend because there's base sixty four encoded. So you basically need to run them through a command line, for example, base64 encoding, and then you could also edit those 
those values directly. But I mean, in this case, it's already handled for us. All right, so the secrets already there, which basically means we can create the service. So the service definition is also straightforward. It basically creates us a service and um, it in the service specification, it annotates cluster IP to be none, which is the definition of a headless service. So the headless service does not receive an IP address. Uh, and by saying and indicating cluster IP none, this makes it a headless service. Um, the selector for the application is Postgres minus A. All right. So the services here under the network section, uh, it will show it exists, but obviously does not have any endpoint because there's no pod matching the label app equal to PostgreSQL minus A. So this is what we'll do next is we'll create another service which will point to the primary. Um, so here the selector uh, could be role primary if we were to um, assign them dynamically, but because we you know, static is fine for us for the moment, we just choose the first pod in a stateful set. So this uh, tagging is already done by Kubernetes, so you get it for free. You don't have to do anything. This, these labels will be there. We'll have a look at it in a second. Oh, I already did that. No changes made, of course. So now it's time to create the actual stateful set. As I said, we are creating a stateful set with three replicas. So similar to replica set or deployment, there will be uh, three uh, pods in the stateful set, but um, different to replica sets, for example, you don't have to recreate, you don't have to create a new stateful set in order to, for example, um, change the container image or anything. In this regard, it's, it is similar, more similar to a deployment in such a way that you can update a stateful set and change values. Um, it will then you know, take control and uh, create and recreate pods accordingly. Um, it is, however, similar to a stateful set in the sense that it has multiple replicas. One of the significant differences between um, replicas, um, uh, between stateful sets and uh, replica sets is that um, in a stateful set, there's ordinality. As you have seen earlier, if you create uh, several pods, they will be numbered. And these numbers, they are um, reliable which means that there's a correspondence between a persistent volume um, being numbered as, you know, as zero and its pod counterpart. So you can be sure that this particular uh, volume will always be attached to this particular pod. Um, this is very important uh, for us because we assume that the first node, the pod with the number zero uh, will be the primary. If that wasn't the case, just like within replica sets where it's a random string attached to the pod name, you wouldn't be able to do that. 
ordinality also means that uh, pods are created in that particular um, sequence, 0, 1, 2, 3, and so on. And they will be uh, destroyed in the opposite direction. So 2, 1, 0. Ordinality, very important for stateful sets. All right, so let's give it a go. And let's watch it because this is the definitely the most interesting part. So you can see that uh, Postgres stateful set zero has been created and is ready, but subsequent pods will fail and they will fail because there's no replication user yet. So if we go into the details, you will see the connection to the server, PostgreSQL primary, PG local, failed because the password authentication failed. Uh, so we need to create that Postgres user. We'll do that by executing the job. The job is pretty simple. It uh, it just executes the PG uh, the PG utilities. In particular, it invokes a Ruby script create replication user, which is this one. Just connects to the database, and uh, it has two directions, up and down, um, and uh, creates a replication user if not if it not exists. So uh, that's that's the item item potency I meant I mentioned earlier. Okay, so let's give it a try. There's the there's the job. Uh, it's not been completed yet. The job has um, you know triggered a pod. Has not succeeded yet. So this is completions and parallelism. Basically means that you have one pod execute, being executed at one time and the pod will only be created um, once and only be executed once. So as you may know there, you could have uh, you know, job descriptors where you do things in parallel and then you can do them also you know, multiple times. So repeating the, the same task several times. Um, if we wanted to create, you know, a, a failover capability so that, for example, a primary may become secondary, you basically have to create replication users on each of the nodes because each of the nodes could become the primary so that the other secondaries are able to log in. Um, so that could, that would be a, a way to do that, but also you need to uh, do that on every, on every uh, node, which is why I, if I had to do it again, would potentially do it doing the pod startup uh, within the stateful set and not as a separate job. All right, so this one has succeeded. Um, these uh, pods, they failed earlier. You can see now uh, the uh, stateful set uh, pod with number one has succeeded after five restarts. Um, the, the stateful set basically starts all the pods of the stateful set at the same time. Well, I mean, why not? Uh, you could also do that in, in sequence, uh, but we don't, we don't really care. I mean, they will keep failing until there will be a, a replication user. And once the job is completed, 
you know, the preliminaries and the prerequisites are met to uh, for the secondaries to log into the primary. Um, and uh, because it's in, you know, the postgres process will fail otherwise, it basically triggers uh, a restart of um, um, of the pods. So you basically have a you know um, eventual consistency behavior here. As I said, this is not how it, how I would do it in a in a real world um, scenario, but it's um, it's a way you know it works good enough here. So this one is pending. You can see he's still doing stuff. Um, I think it's just the UI not being good enough and refreshing. So here we go. Our stateful set is up and running. We have three replicas. This is our primary. Those are our secondaries. All right. So now what we can do is uh, we connect to the primary. As you can see, it's using the primary service. Yes, one database. Uh, per default, it will go to the Postgres database. There's no relation called company because the database is empty. In a, in a second pod, I'll connect to the secondary. There's no relation secondary on uh, relation called company on the secondary either. So let's create it. So we create um, a table called company and we insert a record. Um, record is uh, called any um, nines. And um, if you just retrieve it and selecting it, this is what you get. And on the secondary, which is a different pod, um, now this entry also exists, which basically means that the replication works. So um, that's basically uh, the, the, the demonstration that we have set up um, the uh, replication. Now, what we can also do There's this little pod I've created, it's called inspect. Um, it is a container image that uh, has some network utilities. And as you know, there is a service called PostgreSQL minus service. And this service has three endpoints seven, eight, and nine, which corresponds to the pods created in that stateful set. So if I do NSLOOKUP on, on this uh, headless service URL, this is exactly what I get. I get uh, DNS entries for each of them. 
Um, if I were to manually delete one of those pods simulating a pod failure, it will be created, recreated quickly. And as you can see, well, basically got the same IP address. Yeah, so um, you didn't see the DNS entries reflect other than Yeah, see, now it only has two entries. And it takes a while for the uh, new pod to restart. Here we go. So here is the DNS entry lagging behind. And there you go. It took a while to catch up. So you can see if you want to like to have a fast failover within uh, milliseconds, this wouldn't be a strategy to follow because it took several seconds uh, for the DNS system to catch up with the existence of a new pod. But um, I mean, fair enough, it did its job and it did it quite well. So where does it uh, leave us? Um, leaves us with the conclusions. Well, first of all, what we've done is we've created a Postgres stateful set with asynchronous streaming replication using the official Docker image. Um, I think the effort was reasonable for achieving uh, such a goal. However, we don't have automatic failover, which means we actually need a cluster manager, somebody detect some component detecting that, for example, a Postgres node doesn't exist anymore. Um, and we need failure, uh, you know, we need to trigger a leader election because it could be a network segmentation that isolates uh, two of the nodes from the primary, which still receives, you know, communication from the application. And uh, because you're writing only to the primary, that wouldn't be a problem. Uh, so the best strategy in that scenario would be to just leave the primary be. But on the other hand, you couldn't be sure that uh, this is really the case. So maybe you want to call a quorum decision. And if uh, the other two nodes decide that the, the primary has to go, um, it, they could trigger a new leader election, reallocating that primary position to one of the other nodes in the cluster. Well, this kind of stuff is necessary if you want, if you want to use the real potential of asynchronous replication, but it's outside of today's scope. We don't have, uh, we didn't create an operator and no lifecycle management yet. So those are things to be covered in other and future talks. Um, as I said, what we did here is extracted from the from our Kubernetes training. So you will be guided through uh, the Kubernetes essentials, um, how to create a namespace, how to create a context, how to create a pod, a replica set, a deployment, and their basic coverage of stateful sets. This is by no means as comprehensive as the Kubernetes documentation, but as you can see from from uh, from this talk. 
it is it guides you through using Kubernetes in in um, you know in use cases that are somehow imaginable to be somehow purposeful, and it also shows you some some gotchas and some insights that you don't see by just reading the documentation alone. So. It's all written down. There are also other recordings that go into greater detail. Um, if you want to, uh, you know, dig deeper into that topic, there you go. That's it from my end. So thank you very much. Um, if there are any questions, feel free to ask. Yeah, um, there are a lot of things that we could get into. But, you know, one of the things is that you're very adamant about Postgres. Have you tried this, any of these things? Have you experienced any of the things that you shared today with other databases? I mean, if you think about replication, um, mm -hmm. you have to look at the replication implementation details of every data service. Data services, basically, you know, they all need to solve the same challenges of distributed systems. Um, they do it on a different level. The particularities with Postgres are, for example, that Postgres replication, in, in this case, this, you know, streaming replication, you know, it's not, the, the, there's no failure detection, there's no leader election, there's nothing tied and built into Postgres itself. It just gives you uh, the ability to transfer changes from one server to the other under the naive assumption, you know, that the, uh, the primary is still alive. If you think about more recent uh, database implementations, you could you can also find uh, you know those where in the client, let's say in the application connecting to the database, there is knowledge that there are multiple uh, nodes in the cluster, so that there can be a client failover, for example, so that the client can basically talk to every database client, also committing writes. So, and then on, in, an, in a synchronous fashion, for example, those writes are committed at least to you know, a majority of cluster nodes, and then the cluster will catch up eventually to all the changes. So in this regard, um, the challenges you will face when uh, automating data services will be vastly different from uh, data service to data services, but in, in theory, there are not so many ways on how to solve them, <laughs> at least where they are. But um, for example, you know, detecting a failure, it creates a certain class of problems that will repeat over time. That's why, for example, we have, uh, uh, you know, in, in the virtual machine-based automation, which is much older than our, our, uh, uh, our container-based automation, we'll have a, a framework to address repeating um, uh, issues. And I think beyond the operator SDK, there's room for best practices and repeating patterns and you know something like a framework uh, to address data service automation. Got it, very, very good. Next question for you, what are the things that you would like to challenge our community, the things that you would like to see resolved, the questions that you would like to have answered? What would they be? I believe understanding a distributed system in, in problematic environments, especially problems created by the underlying infrastructure is, is the root cause of a vast majority of issues when, when, when dealing with you know, real world uh, applications uh, running data on Kubernetes. So I think 
the testing of, of poor network uh, uh, circumstances of fluctuating bandwidth, fluctuating latencies, failing connections on various levels. This is the kind of stuff that is, needs to be you know, understood in greater detail and is something that I think the community should engage with. Very, very good. Excellent. Well, as you said, this was the abbreviated version of a longer talk that you'll be giving, and there's plenty of technical details to be thinking about here today. That being said, Julian, always a pleasure to have you with us. Before we finish, though, as is tradition, we have our amazing artist, Ankel, who's in the background, patiently learning alongside with us, and he created this wonderful artistic depiction of the things you talked about today, paying tribute to your amazing motorcycle. It doesn't do the full justice to the Ewan McGregor BMW monster that you brought to Valencia, but I, I think it's still good regardless. Awesome. <laughs> That's very nice. Thank you. That's I'm good. Glad. Good, good, good. So like I said, folks, you've got the link to register for KubeCon to check out the full schedule. Julian's going to be giving a talk in person with us in Detroit. Looking forward to seeing you in, not, in just over a month. It's coming up soon. Um, so looking forward to it and we will be always interacting on